This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So today we are doing episode four in our Healthy Sexuality series, right? Episode four? Yeah. Episode four, we have one more left where next episode we'll kind of wrap everything up and talk about it. Talk about like traits of healthy sexuality versus unhealthy sexuality. So today we're going to be focused on female sexuality. We've hit on this in other episodes, but we're going to dedicate this episode more specifically to females and sexuality. So I think part of sexuality is like you have to talk about the duality of it. Mm -hmm. So we have talked about this before in previous episodes, but I don't think we've gone as in-depth as we want to go today. Right, right. So yeah, when we were talking about male sexuality last time, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about toxic messages and how to train boys and even like men to be healthy sexually and recognize that it's not just their needs Mm -hmm. on the table. Uh, Today, I think we are spending a lot of time talking about how women can even recognize that they have needs. Right. Um, But the other side of that is when we recognize that we have needs, how to keep them in balance and not let them get kind of like over important or chaotic Mm -hmm. or whatever Mm -hmm. that is. Because we we do treat female sex addicts here, which we wanted to talk about today. Right. And it's interesting to me that we act like, in culture, we act like female sex addicts are like a completely different thing Mm -hmm. and rare and not a big deal. That's not really what we see Mm -hmm. here. And honestly, a lot of the trauma is very similar for female sex addicts and female anorexics. Right. We will see the same kinds of trauma pushing these women to extremes. So uh, we want to talk about that today as well and how to move kind of into healthy sexuality and take up your sexual space as a Mm -hmm. female without it getting too big or too small or being a trauma response. Mm -hmm. I have a client that I work with, a female, was a sex addict, but then in recovery, I think her recovery just was really anorexic. Um, And we've kind of had to kind of suss that out in our therapy and work on that and kind of look at that. And and she talks about, you know, maybe the shame or the stigma she felt as a female sex addict and more of the praise or the respect that she got when she was female sexually anorexic. Yes. And how her recovery really like she was so worried about this lust or this out of control sexual behavior that she really gave up her sexuality Mm -hmm. but was praised for doing that yeah i mean uh i don't know that this is abnormal for addiction in general like we will see this with food addiction we like people who are like obsessively eating will Mm -hmm. flip and become like obsessive about what they're eating and exercise and really go to the anorexic extreme, Mm -hmm. which we kind of praise for that because people get in shape and, you know, they look good, they look healthy, but there's a lot of deprivation there. And Mm -hmm. so like we do see that kind of in extremes on a lot of process addictions. Right. 
but specifically with sexuality, like I think that it can be really, really damaging for females to go anorexic because societal norms kind of praise the virtuous, virginal, like abstaining female. Right, right. And it's really easy to let that atrophy. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things, you know, we've had to work on, particularly with this client that I was talking about, is where is the balance, right? Because the problematic sexual behavior or the addictive sexual behavior wasn't healthy and wasn't necessarily um, an expression of, of who she is as a sexual being, but neither was the anorexic. Right. And so we've, we've looked at both extremes in the sexual behavior, but we haven't really looked at where the health lies or where the balance is. Right. So let's talk about some of that balance. Like one of the things that I always find extremely fascinating is that women just don't talk about sex in general, right? Mm -hmm. Like I I think that one of the great places that women could like go to get support and kind of figure out sexuality is within their female friend group. Mm -hmm. And that's usually just not done. Right. Because it's so kind of off-putting or how do you bring that up or or how do you even ask Mm -hmm. those questions and so girls from a very young age are kind of taught that to protect yourself there's a lot around don't get pregnant that was Mm -hmm. one of the things that I heard growing up like getting pregnant will ruin your life which again like I don't know that we should be putting like bringing a life into this world shouldn't necessarily ruin people's lives Mm -hmm. but statistically speaking girls who get pregnant younger do have a harder time being successful, finding childcare, going to college. Are more likely to live in poverty. Yes. And are more likely to end up in abusive relationships Mm -hmm. or the children are more likely to be abused. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So there's a lot of pieces of that that... Though true, I don't know that that should be the focus. Of well, or are are a systemic issue, yes. right? Like they may be true, but we're not looking at it in terms of how do we how do we change the structure of the society that creates that? Right. I mean, I often think of Les Mis, uh-huh, right? Right. Like, I think Les Mis is one of the like a beautiful example of this. I mean, tragic, but beautiful example of this. Like Fantine was a very simple girl who uh-huh. fell in love. She thought that they were going to be together forever. He leaves her with a kid mm-hmm. and she spends the rest of her life trying to take care of this child that she doesn't really like society doesn't even let her take mm-hmm. care of. Mm-hmm. And the assumptions of that, right? Like she falls in love with this one guy. He leaves, leaves her kind of destitute without anything. Which and, he can do and go on do. and have a normal yeah. life. And then she's left with this child and then, like, it spirals into, like, she must be wanton or she must uh-huh. sleep around a lot. Or, like, just the the assumptions that were made right. about Fontaine because of this child and that she was single was kind of, well, it still happens today, right? right. Like, we, we still have that belief system in place, whether or not we want to recognize it or not. So, ch- girls very young are taught, like... Keep it secret. Keep it safe. Mm-hmm. And I think with girls, it's also a little bit different. A lot of our sexual organs, especially primary sex organs, are internal. Right. So, like, when little boys are, like, in diapers, like, I have friends who have male children who are toddlers, mm-hmm. and they know. Right. They have a penis. and They're it's, exploring they're it. They're exploring. Yeah. They, they figured that all out. 
by about the time that they're four, mm-hmm. right? Like they've kind of figured that out. Girls aren't that way. Right. You have to do a lot more training for girls for them to even realize that that's not just one, mm-hmm. you know, piece of organ down there. Right. And and so there's a lot of that that we usually don't do. And if we do do it, it's very simplified. Uh-huh. So girls have a lot of problems even conceptualizing what's right. going on for their sex organs. And, and could uh, be under the impression that they don't necessarily have a sex drive because they're not sure what's really happening and what that is is connected to in their physiological body. Right. And so, you know, that can look very different for girls. And typically that's, you know, healthy girls who are not being abused. <clears throat> mm-hmm. we, we also know that a lot of females are abused as children and early adolescents. And so that piece even takes on a completely different role and often includes grooming and kind of this like buy-in that Mm -hmm. uh, perpetrators will get from the person, from the child, and creates a lot of questions Mm -hmm. about what does this mean for me? Where, what does this mean for me sexually? How do I go about this? What, what am I looking for? And creates all kinds of like micro traumas within the trauma mm-hmm. right so then we kind of get to teenagers and again I think that this is where the idea of like purity culture really shows up and a lot of people in their adulthood now I, I think it's changing a little bit for teens and like 22 year olds and under because of the age of the internet Mm -hmm. and they're getting more information but in conservative cultures that's still pretty tight or or it's pretty um like villainized right it's pretty sex negative stuff and so yeah and so like i so i think that that's one of those things where there's not a whole lot of information out there for females and the information that is out there is like if you are sexual at all you're one of those girls. Mm-hmm. Which, the other thing, I mean, there there are more girls now viewing pornography, whether for their own sexual exploration or whether to figure out, like, what males are desiring and mm-hmm. how to be uh, desired and how to perform. But th- I think the other message that girls are getting it when they're going to porn and looking at porn is there's also kind of an understanding that men or the boys, right, the boys that they're involved with, they may want sex, but they don't necessarily respect the females who are sexual with them. Right. And so it puts them in this situation of being desired, being wanted, maybe being pushed to be sexual, but porn is not respectful towards women. Right. And the women who are in porn, most of them will even acknowledge, like, this is not something that they want their children watching you know, most women in porn have their own sexual trauma history. I don't know of little girls who dream of growing up to be a porn star. Right. They do it. Yeah, they can make some decent money, although that's questionable about how much money the actors and actresses actually make in porn. Right. But again, we have to look at systemically what is our culture doing that this is an avenue for people to pay for their college tuition, right? Maybe it's a, like, college tuition. I have three kids in college. College tuition is ridiculous. 
Right. And so the fact that people will turn to sexual work in order to pay for something that betters them right. is a systemic problem that we're not addressing. Which, again, comes back to Les Mis, right? Like, mm-hmm. Fontaine didn't become a prostitute because she wanted to be a prostitute. Right. That was very much against who she was. Um, and even, like, I think that even the prostitutes in Les Mis, if you look at the the movie with Hugh Jackman. Okay. They were all kind of there in similar situations, right? Like, it was a last resort. It right. was because we can't do anything else. Society won't give us any other hope. Right. Um, well, and in that particular movie, they did show, too, other ways of exploiting them, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it was their teeth, whether it was their hair. And the women who were in prostitution had to give up those things for the women who didn't have to be in prostitution, to right. help them be more desirable, to have them look better, right? These women had to give it up. Right. Which is, I mean, systemically, it's terrifying, and that kind of stuff still happens very prevalently. Like, mm-hmm. that is the porn industry, and I think that... Well, and women in porn don't have a... It's not a lifelong thing, right? right? I mean, they may make a lot of porn, which makes it seem like they're in there a long time. Yeah. But the health risks and the health issues involved in porn, actually a porn star's career is actually quite short. Yeah. And that in and of itself, like even when you look at sexual exploitation in the world, it's usually young girls, mm-hmm. usually females, and most male porn stars even in the industry have a lot more power mm-hmm. and a lot and make a lot more than the females which i think is an interesting thing to put out there but not to focus so much on the porn industry itself because i think that that in and of itself can we can talk all day about mm-hmm. how the porn industry creates unhealthy sexuality but i think this duality of mindset that we have about women uh I often think about how people in my world have talked about the slave trade, like the the current slave trade. And it's always about like girls in India or girls in China. I, I always have this kind of dialogue running in my back of my head of like, or Denver or Dallas mm-hmm. or Atlanta or any major US yeah, city. Any, yeah. Vegas, yeah. Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the one I was trying to think about. Like Those are major cities, major ports of entry are huge for the sex trade. Mm-hmm. But we want to act like it's in those countries over there where those people are so sexually dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that most countries that have that kind of sex trade, a lot of the... Johns or whatever are actually American men. Mm-hmm. Um, they're businessmen, mm-hmm. and so that's that's a good calibration of we take in most of the porn, we consume most of the porn in the world, and we are also the perpetrators of smaller countries mm-hmm. and the prostitution industry. That being said, like we do have this like oh those are those people over there. We very rarely think about the incest that's happening in our own homes, the grooming that happens in our high schools, the um, just what's happening in pop culture and media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's very interesting that we 
allow violence, especially sexual violence, to get a PG-13 rating. As long as it's not too bad, right? But uh, movies that portray healthy, loving sexual relationships will always get a rated R. Mm -hmm. Uh, It will always get rated R. But violence and sex... It depends on the sex, right? Like right. it depends on how violent we're getting and if there's blood or not. But look at all of the Avengers movies, right? And mm-hmm. I'm 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 a Marvel fan, guys. Like I will get in I will jump in that. <laughs> but like there's definitely some illusion of sexual exploitation of Black Widow and we just kind of laugh that off and like mm-hmm. move on. There's definitely like Tony Stark has dancers mm-hmm. in the first movie. In the second movie, he's basically asking Pepper Potts if he can hire Scarlet, Black Widow, not Scarlet Witch, Black Widow, because she's hot. And there's a lot of violence in that PG-13 rating. Right, right. And I, I think that I struggle with that, the amount of just grooming our society does for women. This, you have to be desirable, you have to be virtuous but not really uh-huh like we expect you to be sort of sexual but don't let that get out right and, and don't let that become public knowledge but in well, order i mean there is this like the women the women who are raising the children are not the ones we want in porn right Right. And so I, I think for a lot of males it and females, but for males, it creates this, wait a minute, what do I do with my desire? Mm-hmm. Because the women I want to be sexual with or the women who arouse me sexually are not the women I want to come home to dinner to and to sit around the dinner table with my children with. Right. Like I, I can't have that. And so I think it also creates this issue for females. I I, I like years ago when Fifty Shades came out, right? I will say it's the only Audible book I listened to most of my books on Audible. It was the only Audible book I've ever returned. Like I just couldn't stand it. Like I thought the characters were so boring and uncomplex, right? Like there was not much to the characters. And I was reading it because I thought, okay, a lot of my clients are reading it. A lot of my clients are talking about it. I'll read the book. And I just, I couldn't do it. I was just like, ugh, please. But I was also talking to my hairdresser one day, and she was like, the amount of Christian women who are loving this book, she's like, I don't get it. And I was like, I get it, but it's still disturbing to me Mm -hmm. that this is what we're offering as opposed to vanilla sex, right? We're offering this. BDSM type of stuff. Well, and it's not... I didn't get through the book either, to be fair. I didn't get through Twilight, which is... It was a fan fiction of Twilight. So, like, it didn't do well for me on either front. But I I think from what I can gather and what I've picked up, because I have tried to read pieces to kind of make sense of it, because I have a lot of clients that loved it too. It's not even real BDSM. There's not consent. No, there's not. There's not. There, there's not a consensual agreement. Like, well, it's and, very and in a lot of BDSM, I mean, I have some clients who have participated in that, and they're not, I can't even remember her name. What was her name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. But they're more complex people than she was. Mm-hmm. And 
And so I, I think that is missing from her. He had to, once again, he had to show her her sexuality. Mm-hmm. She didn't know that prior to that. And I don't find with the BDSM clients that I work with, that's not true. Right. They have embraced their sexuality. They're not asking somebody else to show them or teach them who they are as a female in terms of their sexuality. So Anastasia, was that her name? I don't know. Uh, you something. got further than I did. I don't. <laughs> I Yeah. Anyway, I think it's this, like, there's something... I was talking when I was talking with my hairdresser I said to her there is something that it's tapping into this mm-hmm. latent undeveloped for many women I think unknown prior to reading that book mm-hmm. definitely though undeveloped that it's tapping into and can be somewhat dangerous because yeah. again it doesn't really even portray the consent part of that mm-hmm. so you know to me I like sometimes I will ask clients who have said this like what is it about you kind of being helpless and not knowing? But he's very informed. He very much knows what his sex drive is and what his desire is and what it is not. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that about? Because to me, that's that undeveloped part. Mm-hmm. And these are good women, right, who were loving this book. These are your moms. These are your soccer moms. These are your, like, church-going mothers who were reading this book in secret. I mean, for me, I think that Fifty Shades of Grey, like that whole that whole genre, because like I would even say that like Twilight tapped into this too, mm-hmm. because you had like I was amazed at the amount of adult women right that loved that book series. And and again, like I I'm the resident nerd, right? I'm a reader by breath like Mm -hmm. if I'm awake and have time I want to be reading and so like I think for me it was just it was hard for me to get into those books but I I will say they also came out at the same time that some other books came out and I started making correlations with those books and why they became so big you had the Hunger Games Mm -hmm. which had a female protagonist you had I mean Harry Potter came out a little bit before, but like the women in Harry Potter are extremely strong, complex mm-hmm. characters. You had what was the the maze, the maze runner, runner mm-hmm. which also, also had strong, strong female. females. There were a bunch of them that all came out at once uh-huh. that were very, very strong female protagonists. And on some level, they were kind of coming into their own sexually. There was some of that, like, young romance and trying Mm -hmm. to figure it out. And I would say that Bella in Twilight was the weaker of all of those. Right. You definitely had a a lot of those that felt more like they were trying to figure their sexuality out, where I feel like Bella just kind of fell into this weird vampire love story. Um, well, and without the love story, there wasn't much to her, right? right. Like, I, I started the Twilight series because I had those ages of kids where um, they supposedly were marketed to those kids. I think it was a little too young. My, I think my kids were too young, but most of their friends were reading those books. So I was like, okay, well, I need to read these books. You know, we had conversations about, like, it's kind of weird to have a male watch you sleep. Like, mm-hmm. that's kind of weird. Um, Also, this man is like hundreds of years old and you're not like, you know, so we had those conversations. But my older two girls, like neither of them made it through the second book. They were just like, 
and, and that's when I think Edward had left Bella and like most of book two, Bella's just depressed mm-hmm. and she doesn't know who she is without Edward. And that's like when my kids were like, I can't do this book. Like there's just, it's too annoying is what they said. I considered it a personal parent win <laughs> that my girls were like, oh, I can't take this. It's so annoying. Right. But without her being caught between these two, you know, Edward and I can't even remember, Jacob, or I can't remember the other, the werewolf names. The vampire and werewolf, yeah. that's kind of how. So without her being this desire for both of them and kind of feeling torn between the two of them, she really didn't have much of her character developed. Right, and and I mean, okay, so Twilight was not my thing. I have read a lot of that young adult literature. Mm-hmm. Divergent was the other oh, one. Oh, Divergent, yep. And uh, Beautiful Creatures. Um, so th- there's a lot of that that I have read, and I, I I think it's important, for me, it's important to know what the up-and-coming readers are reading. Uh-huh. Again, I'm a reader, so that's what I do. One of the themes that always came out in these books is the idea that, like, even when they were strong females, they had to have a love story. Mm-hmm. I think the only one of that whole, like, of everything that I just said that didn't kind of require that for all of their female characters was Harry Potter. Mm. But Hermione did have to have a Mm -hmm. love story. And so there's some of that that, like, that's a natural growth process that we fall in love. We, you know, we couple, we figure out our sexuality, hopefully. And I think that that's very powerful. But I also think it speaks a lot to the books at the time that were coming out with Twilight and the and even like moving kind of past that, the archetypes that were used as the male leads, mm. right? Vampires and werewolves are predatory. Right. And in every other book series that I have read that have those kind of characters, they're not the ones you want to fall in love with. Mm-hmm. They're extremely predatory. Even in Anne Rice's book series where there is a lot of, like, vampires not wanting to be vampires and trying to find their humanity again and all of that, like, vampires weren't really, they were still very much not human mm-hmm. and had kind of cut all of that humanity out of them. And I, I wonder what that speaks, like, just in reflection, maybe not even to what we know about what we're teaching females, but what is innate in our culture that that was even attractive. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it also, going back to just our conversation about porn and the porn industry, um, this power dynamic, mm-hmm. right? And I think when we start talking about in this literature for young adults um, into adulthood, but it was geared towards young adult mm-hmm. literature, right? This idea of them falling in love with predatory males Mm -hmm. and power Mm -hmm. and then when we combine that with the me too movement right most of these men who got caught up in the me too movement had power and they were and were predatory with the power that they had right and what is this saying to women about men with power right and i i think that those are constructs that show up a lot for females and i do think there, it's it feels to me kind of like a rubber band, mm-hmm. um, where women historically have tried to push out of this like very kept 
female and we will get so far and then we snap back and and kind of watching it over my lifetime like I grew up well I, I mean like we listened to a lot of like girl bands and indie bands and things like that when I was growing up my mom was huge into music. So, like, heart was a big thing. Mm. I loved heart growing up. I loved, like, even, like, the Judds, the country music mm-hmm. Judds, and No Doubt, and Garbage, which was um, Stephanie Manson. Like, I kind of grew up with these very strong females singing about women power and, like, stepping outside of that and not needing man men. And then there was kind of this snapback. Like, you had basically two decades of that and you had your like madonnas and things like that Mm -hmm. too but then like in the late 90s we get britney spears and christina aguilera and like which were very very sexualized teenagers Mm -hmm. and they were again speaking about more predatory stuff and i remember when both of them made kind of that leap into owning their own sexuality versus having it put on them and the albums that that happened People were, like, protesting them and burning their stuff because, like, they had gotten raunchy. Or And I was like, mm-hmm. I, I, well, I thought that's where we were at the beginning, but okay. But when they started owning that piece of their story and kind of saying, like, okay, if this is what you want from me, I will own it and take it, there was a huge backlash. And, like, what are we teaching our girls? And, and I was kind of wondering, like, where was that the decade before? Mm-hmm when they were teaching, they were grooming in some capacity, like, this is what boys want, this is what boys need. Right. This Um, is how boys will respect female artists. mm -hmm. I mean, Christina Aguilera's very first, like, debut song is I'm a Genie in a Bottle. Like, it's all about you making wishes Mm -hmm. on her body. Yeah. There's something very, again, predatory about that. Yeah. And then as I've kind of, in adulthood, kind of watched we don't have a whole lot of strong female songs anymore. And even some of those um, artists that I grew up with, like you look at Gwen Stefani, who came out as this like ska rocker. Mm -hmm. She was very much like, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. It it has really shifted for me in in terms of what that looks like and what she's allowed to present herself as Mm -hmm. in the media. And I do kind of wonder what that says about where we need to go with female sexuality Mm -hmm. because there's not a whole lot of balance in that. And if we're picking that apart, um, and and we're talking about big social constructs, but Mm -hmm. like if we're picking that apart in individual women who feel like they have to be the mom, they have to be, you know, all of these things and they have to get nipped and tucked and zipped and pulled so that they're desirable, but they don't really know what they want or they need or like, there's just a lot to that. Mm -hmm. I remember my oldest was very much into One Direction and um, they had a, a nice little song that came out about like, you don't know you're beautiful, right? And that's what makes you beautiful. And you know, when she was in the car, we were, I would typically, I will, a lot of times I'll listen to my kids' music. Um, when they go through their rap phase, I have a hard time with that, but they will also listen to my music, right? So I have some influence there, but I'll listen to their music. And one of the days we were driving in the car and that song came on and after it played, you know, and 
I mean, I'll, I'll sing along with it. You know, it's a cute little tune. I was singing with it. She was singing with it. And after it ended, I said, you know, one of the things that bothers me about that song is it kind of plays into this whole idea that what makes women beautiful is they don't know they're beautiful and men have to tell them they're beautiful. And so it's this whole, like, you don't, as a female, you don't define your desirability. Mm-hmm. Others are defining that desirability for you. And that's mm-hmm. what makes you so desirable, you cute little thing. You just didn't know it, right? And, I mean, my kids have said to me before, like, I've ruined many a good song <laughs> or movie for them. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah. And, you know, I've had one of my kids told me, like, Mom, I just don't really listen to the... I don't literally listen to the words. I just like the beat or I like the melody or I like whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but your brain is listening to words. Like your brain is picking up words because that's how the brain works. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to figure out what that is saying. And so that message is coming in, maybe not on a conscious level, but it's coming in and it's having an influence over you. And so I'm going to have that influence too, right? And I'm going to do it consciously. And we're going to have a discussion about what that means for you as a female and what that means for you as a girl and what message is this cute little tune giving you about your own desirability or your like who you are as a person and how you get to define that or not. Well, we also know statistically too, like about the time that women start quote unquote, aging out of Hollywood is in real life when we start to recognize that we have sexuality, that we recognize Mm -hmm. that we have power. Well, and and really come into harmony with who we are. Yeah. So it's that 35 to like 55 age range. And then like at 55, we start like casting them as like crones. Or grandmas. (laughs) Or grandmas, Um, which to me is really a struggle to, because... That age range is where most women in America live. Mm-hmm. Like, as a 20-year mm-hmm. earmark where most women live and they're not seen in our media. But I think this, there's this other piece of that that is incredibly powerful when we talk about, like, women kind of stepping into their own being. Mm-hmm. Not just sexuality, but being, right? Like... I have watched my friends go from, like, not really doing what they want or, like, just kind of struggling to, to make the family work. And, and that 35 to 55 age range seems to be when women, their kids are getting older, they can kind of sit down and figure out, like, what do I want out of my life? How do I create a life of meaning for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and... That's such a powerful thing, I think, for women. But I think it's really scary for the patriarchy in general and, and what that looks like. And I think when it comes to especially sexual trauma, like I don't talk to women that don't have sexual trauma. And I don't know if that's because of the work that I do that I just kind of like create a magnet for that. But like... I don't talk to women that don't have sexual trauma. In in my work, I don't talk to women that don't have sexual trauma. In my life, I don't talk to women that don't have sexual trauma. To the point that I kind of like when people say that they don't, I just don't believe them. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and maybe that's really bad of me, but like it it's so entrenched. Big T in, trauma or little T or trauma. Or little T trauma, right? Like I, everything from like cat calls to like inappropriate groping to like just 
random things that well, happen. Well, or like to going in and getting your tires rotated and being treated like you're, you don't know what you're doing. Right. Right. Like, I mean, it happens on s- many just subtle, like this is just part of everyday life. I don't even really pay attention to it or this right. is so normal. And so like, I don't, so when, as a therapist, when I'm kind of unpacking that, I want to understand the messagings that women got about being female. Mm-hmm. Because the messages that we get about being female often play into our sexuality, mm-hmm. if not always. So when I have someone who's sexually anorexic or someone who's sexually addicted or someone who, a female who's just really kind of struggling, I want to know, how were you told to dress as a child? How are you expected to behave? How, how did that show up? Mm-hmm. What were the expectations of you for being female. And we see this in our world historically for a really long time. Like when Jane Austen started writing, it was believed that women couldn't write, that they Mm -hmm. didn't have the mental capacity to write. And her books... Or read. Yeah, or read. And her books have transcended Mm -hmm. generations. Now, I think that if you read Jane Austen... From a modern mindset, they're they're very dated mm-hmm. and very sexist. But when you think about all the things that she had to do to just get those books published and written, like, mm-hmm. you, you, well, and several of her female characters for her time were still like kicking against the right. the culture, strong, mm-hmm. incredibly powerful, and and very much like Lizzie, uh, she. She pushes all of the social norms right. for women. And her right? father loves her for it. Yeah. And and I think that that's incredibly powerful to see that, like, this is not a new thing. Uh-huh. For centuries, women have been saying, like, I have some support. If, right. I, if I can just get a little bit of support, like, I can go far with this. But I think that we have a tendency to, to pull women down. And when it uh-huh. comes to sexuality specifically... Those messages get really, really, really twisted. Right. One of the things that I I always look at when I'm dealing with sexual anorexia or sex addiction in a female is what is the trauma story? Mm-hmm. Because I don't... And the power story. Often and the, the trauma story. and power story are intertwined. Right. Because the people who have the power in females' yeah. lives are usually the ones creating the yeah. trauma. And for females, then, in sex addiction, often there's a, it may not be every time they're acting out, but there's a, I also gain my power through my sexuality, Mm -hmm. right? So I've been preyed upon, I also go on the prey, and then sometimes just that being preyed upon gets reacted out, and so the trauma repeats itself, and then that sets them out to go out and prey upon. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, well, and we we also experience, I don't know if this is true across the board, but I experience like women will take sexual addictions offline faster than men. Like mm-hmm. men will just watch porn and masturbate and whatever, like because they have a safe enough social structure that they don't want to really risk that. Mm-hmm. Now they will and do, but more often than not, my females will take it offline mm-hmm. a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is, like, porn only gets women so far. Right. It's not really it's not really ma- for them made for them. them. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I do think that that is a piece of it. 
but we don't live in a world where it's safe for women to explore their sexuality either. Uh-huh. Like we talked about rape culture and purity culture in our previous episodes. And what comes out of that is that women are not safe to explore sexually. And we can re-traumatize very quickly right. in a world that is okay with traumatizing women sexually. Yeah. So some of that, one of our uh, questions, we read some of the questions in our last episode that we got, um, but there was one question we wanted to save for this episode. And I think there's a couple of different angles to talk about from this question. It's a longer question. Do you have it? Yeah, pulling it. It's a longer question, but I think it, it can talk about a couple of different angles. So it is a longer question. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase. So if the question was from a male and he's saying like, as a husband and a father of daughters, I often feel like I need to step in or be the authority. And how do I differentiate between positive male behavior um, and the negative? And is there a guideline for me to know how to talk about or deal with sexuality or deal with females in my life as a father? Right. That's the one that you're yeah, yep. referring to. Okay, so a couple of areas that we can take from that question, I think. I'm not exactly sure what that male was looking for for with that question, what answer, but I think there's a couple of different answers that we can give from that question. So first of all, I think um, the idea that the male is the authority, and I don't know that this is what he was getting at, but the idea that the male is the authority and has to step in and be that authority is patriarchal in nature yeah right I think saying you're a voice at the table and it's an important voice but no more important than any other voice at the table and that's something you know I think in in my family it's it's not always easy I've said before like it would be a much easier way of parenting if easy and efficient is what I'm going for to just say you know the parents get to decide because we're the parents And I don't think that that's effective way to parent, right? It's less time consuming, but I Mm -hmm. think saying every voice gets to be heard, right? And that's kind of crazy sometimes when your kids are four. Um, But I think if you start to teach a four-year-old that your voice matters and you get to have a voice and we listen to your voice, we may say to you, well, I don't know that we can do this, but how about this, Mm -hmm. right? We're still listening to that voice. And there have been times, I mean, now my kids are mostly adults. My youngest is 16. There's still times I'm saying like, oh my gosh, like we're just trying to figure out where we want to go for dinner. And we have six opinions. And can we just decide, right? Or I might say to them like, who said y'all get a voice? Well, I did, right? And there, and my husband did. And we did that intentionally. And we did that on purpose because we want our daughters to feel like they have a voice. And that voice matters. Right. But sometimes it's not the most time-efficient time way of handling things. Well, I think the other thing, too, and I think this speaks, and I love that. Like, I'm totally stealing that for my own daughter. I've <laughs> Parenting skills from Jackie. I'm just <laughs> glad that you had yours before I had mine. Um, But one of the things that I think does show up in that is we don't give women a voice about their sexuality. We don't give women a voice at the table a lot of times for Mm -hmm. a lot of different things. Religion 
has historically not given women at the uh, voices, we're still really not. Like there are a few religions that have kind of shifted into that, mm-hmm. but we're way behind. Politically, we're just now starting to see women really step out politically and, and get their voices out there. And so I, I don't know that women have had voices at the decision tables mm-hmm. historically. So when we're talking to our children in our home and you're saying you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up, but you can't decide if you're wearing the blue shoes or the red shoes. Right. Like, maybe we'll let them start with the little decisions. Maybe we'll let them know that, like, their decisions are valid and mm-hmm. and even that there are consequences to that, right? Like, I think that that's a great tool to teach mm-hmm. kids like okay you don't want to wear your jacket you're going to be coming back in in 15 minutes because right you're refusing to wear a jacket that's up to you i also think teaching girls not only that their decisions are important or that that their voice is important but even helping to recognize the the micro ways that the world will try to shut them down mm-hmm. right so I appreciate the fact that when I'm at a table, because I've worked with uh, like teenage girls and young adults, and when I'm at the table, they have a lot to say. Mm-hmm. But it's always interesting to me when you introduce a man into the room or a boy into the room, like any male figure, it really quiets down. It really tones down. Mm-hmm. And, and this is true for adult women, too. I've been in adult female situations where the same thing happens. And I think for this particular question, like, as a dad, I think one of the most powerful things that I could have experienced as a daughter is for my dad to have listened mm. about the things that mattered. My mm-hmm. dad would listen to me about hobbies. He would listen to me about schoolwork. But when it came to, like, my development, I never felt like I could talk to my dad about my relationships mm-hmm. because that was kind of, like, he just thought I shouldn't date until I was 30. Mm-hmm. And I was always going to be his little girl. So growing into the maturity of that, like, I couldn't have those conversations. And looking back... To have a dad to listen to that mm-hmm. and kind of say, like, hmm, I've never thought about that from that perspective. Or, like, well, let me give you this perspective. And not, like, all boys are thinking about sex and so, mm-hmm. you know, like. And it's my job to protect, protect my daughters you. from sex. Yeah. Right. Like, if we had had more, I think if if I was able to have that kind of conversation with an, a male figure in my life, I, I could have avoided a lot of heartache because I would have been more aware of what was going on in the world and the complexities of that. But I didn't have a male figure to do that with. And so like, I think that that can be really powerful. Listen, just listen to what they're saying. And you may have to cut through all of the, like, I I get it. Like, especially with like teenage girls, there's like nails and hair and what shows are on TV. And, but like, even like what you're saying, like, one Direction music, mm-hmm. right? Like, take the influences from your kids and take time to talk to them. I don't know that you have to, like, make decisions or demand attention mm-hmm. um, or demand that they listen. Uh, I have learned that there are two ways that we get respect in this world. One is fear and one is love. And fear will always win out. because And it's fear a really game. isn't respect. Yeah. 
It's it, fear. It, it's fear. But, I mean, in the short game, if your kids fear you, you get a lot of obedience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if your kids love and respect you, you get a lot more deep, mm-hmm. rich communications mm-hmm. that really lead to good, healthy, like right. adult relationships. Because they bring kids. those conversations to you. Right. So I think it's very counterintuitive to what men have been taught historically, but I do think like just sitting and talking to your kids, not even like talking so much as listening, just right. listen. Well, and, and it's one thing I remember when my husband and I were first talking about getting married, my husband had asked me at the time, like, do I need to talk to your dad specifically and get his permission to ask you to marry me. And I was offended, right? And listeners of my podcast kind of know the story about my dad. But I was like, my dad is pretty much absent from my life. No way in hell is he going to give permission for me to decide who I marry, right? Like, no way. So my husband didn't. And we kind of broke with tradition there. And I don't know what my dad thought about it. I don't even know if my dad thought about it, right? But it's one of the things, none of none of our children are married, right? Some of them are of marrying age if you're young. But my husband and I have talked about this as they've dated, you know, as they approach that marriage age. Like, again, this is not his decision. It's not my decision. Our job is to um, get to know the people that they're dating, to get to know the people that they're hanging out with, and to make a connection with these people, right? Like, it's not for us to approve of who they're dating or not to approve of them. This, hopefully, right, what we've taught our children about how they're treated and how they should be treated is enough for them to make those informed decisions. And our job is to trust them, trust that they have a good head on their shoulders, and, you know, we have to get to know who they're dating. And it's their decision whether or not they're dating them. It's their decision whether or not they move that into a marriage. It's not our choice, which I know breaks age-old patriarchal traditions that maybe a lot of dads love and maybe a lot of dads feel very sentimental about. But what message does that send your daughter that this is a contractual deal between her husband and her father? Right. You can break that down as in many, many ways, right? Like I remember I was dating a guy and I dated him for a long time, like two, two plus years. Uh, And talking to my dad after we broke up, I had kind of talked about the fact that this boyfriend that I was dating was scared of my dad. And and that's actually why we hadn't gotten engaged, I I think. Um, I think there were, were a lot of things that kind of went into that. But my dad just kind of said, I would have never given him permission to marry you. And that hit, like, it hit me like cold water. And Mm. I just remember thinking, like, if you didn't think that I should marry him, why didn't we have a conversation about that? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, my dad never said very much. Like, he would make fun of him and, like, kind of poke fun at him. But my dad did that with a lot of people. Mm. A lot of guys that I dated anyway. And so, like, I didn't know that there was anything out of the norm. But apparently my dad was seeing huge red flags. And instead of him talking to me about it, he was just going to veto that. Mm. And, again, I'm like, well, that could have saved me two years of heartache. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but I did grow in that relationship. I learned a lot in that relationship. Uh, I don't know that I would not have that relationship again. But again, we come back to like having those kinds of conversations 
about the red flags, about the about the things that we like, right? Like, right. I, I don't know that up until the, the man that I actually ended up marrying, I knew positive things about the guys that I dated from my mm. dad. Like, they were just all evil people who wanted to take his daughter away. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I knew that. Like, whether he said that or not, that was definitely, actually, he never said that. He didn't say very much about my dating relationships. That was very much internalized. Like, I could feel that. Mm-hmm. And, Which I also think, um, and, and I think sometimes moms do this more, right? They get to know who the kids are hanging out with sometimes more than dads do. And I think that puts it back onto dads to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think my husband does this really well. He gets to know, I mean, one thing our daughters can bring friends over, it's kind of a pain because our weekends aren't really quiet because we have any number of children in the house. Um, not children, but, you know, we have any number of people in the house. And, but my husband gets to know them. And he's not always very good with names. He makes up a lot of names. But he does it in a way that's kind of joking. And they, they let him call him whatever they that he calls them, right? And they get to know him. He jokes with them. He knows them. Like, that is the responsibility of the father, mm-hmm. right? Like, I get to know who my kids are hanging out with. Mm-hmm. We can talk about things, right? And I've had a lot of my kids' friends, male and female, come to my husband with certain things like, hey, I need help on this, or how do I do this, or mm-hmm. what is, because he is available, right? I think I make myself available to their friends too, but I don't know that a lot of dads take that as their responsibility to get to know and be an adult who is approachable and accessible for these young adults, young teens, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I think, like, if I had to say, if I had to choose, like, a role model to kind of look at to, like, break the patriarchy um, in terms of, like, male-daughter dynamics or, male, like, even male-husband dynamics, like, be Mr. Rogers. Ask mm-hmm. a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Validate. Affirm. Affirm. Like, I think that if we approach the world more like Mr. Rogers did and less like John Cena, we would mm-hmm. be in a lot better place. And I'm not saying anything against John Cena. I think that he's probably a decent human being. But I, I love that. Like, I, I even, I just recently rewatched an episode of Mr. Rogers. And one of the things that stood out to me was just how, like, validating he was mm-hmm. to, like, he had females on his show who were in, like, knowledge positions Mm -hmm. and like education kind of positions and he was always so courteous to them he asked questions he was very validating he gave them space to Mm -hmm. be who they were and i think that that's such a beautiful thing um it it does require a lot of work and it it mr rogers i think is very much against what toxic patriarchy is. Mm-hmm. Like to me he he represents so much more than like he is a complex male figure who is compassionate and loving and caring. Mm. He was also in the military from what I gather. Like he was a pastor. Like he mm-hmm. had some very mm-hmm. like he was very diverse outside of the show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. But even in that, like he brings in some complexity to that. And I think that as a male do that. Mm-hmm. And validate the women in your life. Mm-hmm. Listen, ask questions. I think that that's huge. 
Which, I mean, we said in our last episode, you're going to have to get in tune with yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Because otherwise those things are going to make you very uncomfortable and you're more likely to push those away or make fun of them or dismiss or denigrate those Mm -hmm. things. So just a couple of other things I I think, you know, from that question, you know, some things like when I'm working with males with daughters and they get to that age of having periods, like, sure, oftentimes you can tell when that time of the month is approaching. Is it okay for you to say, like when they come to you and they're upset about something or they're angry about something and you say, are you going to start your period? No, that's not okay, right? It's dismissing, it's denigrating, it's something that you don't really understand. And you and I talked about how oftentimes what what she is upset about or what's going on with her, it's not like it only happens that time of the month, but the intensity in which she experiences it may be higher. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a non-issue that you can just dismiss outright. It's just maybe she finally is emotional enough to say something or to bring it up or to not tolerate it. Yeah. Well, and I also think, and regardless of what people think, like women are required to keep their emotions in check, Mm -hmm. right? Like I can't just have an emotional day at work. I just can't do that. I don't have, I don't have the ability to do that. And when I do, I have to, pull myself together, I have to be pretty present for my clients. So like if stuff is going on for me, like I got to figure out how to deal with that Mm -hmm. so that I can be with them. And I think that's true for a lot of women, like being emotional or being like excessively emotional, um, too emotional, I think is usually Mm -hmm. the word that's used. Um, I don't agree that there is a too emotional, but being kind of keeping our emotions in check is required as a female. And so we we let a lot go. Mm-hmm. We let a lot slide that we should probably be saying things throughout the month about. But there does, biologically, I think there is some of that where, like, it's just harder to hold all of those things mm-hmm. in. And maybe we you start listening. Right. And maybe we also start to kind of ask, like, if this is going on, like, if... It's one thing to just be cranky when your period's about to start, but if like major issues are coming up, maybe we start asking like, why aren't we having these conversations right. the rest of the month? Because it's probably an issue the rest of the month, and that could be a reflection on how the relationship actually is handled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we, if we can let that pressure off the rest of the month and kind of talk about the hard things, it's not as bad when we get to that, right? right. Then we're just kind of struggling with the biological hormone dump that is a female body but if there's a pressure cooker of emotions and things that we need to deal with and then we have to deal with the biological pieces that's a lot harder Mm -hmm. yeah so I, I think also if we were to look at right like how our medical system is structured, right? It's not really structured around female health. Right. And so we may not know enough about the female body, right? And so I I think there's also a lot of these issues that females experience really are not understood and are not wanting to be understood, right? We just kind of dismiss them outright as like being emotional or that time of the month or whatever. And, and so I think, again, before we start dismissing this, we kind of have to look at what the patriarchal structure 
is set up to do and not do. Right. Well, and just to speak to that, like if you don't believe that that's a thing, because I've had people say that it's not a thing. We literally had hysteria Mm -hmm. as a medical diagnosis for women who were just a little emotional sometimes. Right. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, even still, most male procedures get reimbursed at a higher rate from insurance companies than female procedures. And so if doctors are going to be making money, what are they going to gravitate towards, right? The ones that are reimbursed at a higher rate. Why are they at a higher rate? I don't know. It would seem to me that the female body is a little bit more complex and that should be at a higher rate, but it's not. So I think, you know, we have to understand Again, I think this goes back to one of the comments we had in one of our episodes where you were talking about in one of your male groups that you were talking about privilege, Mm -hmm. that there is just a lot of inherited privilege that males enjoy Mm -hmm. and don't even know, right? Because they may also experience trauma or other hardships that go into their life that it doesn't feel like privilege to them. But when we start to break things down like this, they may not fully recognize that there is some privilege that they experience that women don't. Right. I think the other piece to that, and and looking at medical and looking at all that, like one of the things that always, always comes up at some point when I'm working with a female is the, the shame around periods. Like when they mm. got their first period, like how that was treated and what that looked like. Periods are a natural, like it happens for women who are mature sexual age, mm-hmm. sort of. I mean, it happens from women from the time that they're like 11 to 13 until menopause. Like, mm-hmm. that's like a big four part of our decades. Life. And every month, women will experience shame around that. Uh-huh. And I think that that's a huge piece of, we don't, like, Guys don't experience mm-hmm. shame around pooping. Well, and, and, and females don't talk about, they don't talk about their periods. They don't talk about miscarriage. They don't talk about infertility. They, I mean, so many things that impact right. females' lives that men don't want to hear about, right? And so as a result, women don't talk to even other women about it. Right. And it's such a big part of their life that they just shut down and deal with on their own. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was going to say with this particular question um, about how, you know, to be that authoritative voice is I, I don't think that there's an authoritative voice. If you have three people sitting at the table, you have three voices that you need to work towards consensus on. If you have four people at the table, there's not an authority there. There, you know, so I think using curiosity, trying to understand how to work things, I don't think people typically like having their uh, emotional issues solved for them. I think they are capable of solving that. They may be venting to you. They may be bouncing things off of you. And you can say like, wow, that sounds really frustrating for you. Or wow, that sounds like that's really irritating for you. You don't need to solve them for that for them, right? You can reflect back how they're feeling if you're not necessarily a voice at that table and you're just kind of that sounding board. I think you can reflect back to them what you're hearing and how what you're observing and what you think that they're experiencing and letting them solve that on their own. Anything else on this before we wrap up? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think 
having a round table discussion about a lot of things can be super helpful. And I get our lives are busy and it is not always easy to sit down and say like, hey, let's talk about this thing. But I will also say like in our world, we can get really distracted with electronics, with busyness, with work and slowing down and recognizing that these relationships are the most important relationships in your life. And just taking the time to do that, uh, I think is really, really powerful. And honestly, questioning, just asking like, how does it feel when I do Mm -hmm. this? Mm-hmm. What does it look like to you when I just supersede and make decisions? Uh, how does that make you feel? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Get some feedback from that. I think that relationships are incredibly powerful when we can give and receive feedback mm-hmm. that may be hard, but I think you can learn a lot from it too. Yes, absolutely. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.